Welcome to episode 27 in Revelation and Idealist Interpretation. I'm Father Ron Shibley, founder and director of the Anglican Internet Church and the producer of this series. Revisions to this series are part of the AIC's continuing celebration of the start of its second decade on the web. If you've not already viewed episode 2, which includes the primer on numerology, I urge you to do so since understanding how John used numerology is critical to understanding Revelation and this series. In this episode, the focus is on chapter 21, A New Heaven and a New Earth, the first of two chapters in Act 5 of the divine drama that forms the second half of Revelation. In this chapter, many of the strands, or threads, if you will, of the story which St. John tells in Revelation are brought together. St. John's point of view remains earth looking to heaven. The illustration, John dictating Revelation, is a 15th century Italian fresco in the Greek style at Mount Athos, Greece. I have divided chapter 21 into five readings, And the first reading is verses 1 through 5. Nearly all the illustrations in this episode are the New Jerusalem, an illumination in colors on gold on parchment from the 11th century Apocalypse manuscript, the Sansaver Beatus, and the New Jerusalem, used in full or in part from the Bamberg Apocalypse, as used on page 174, in the companion bookstore publication, Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation, and The New Jerusalem from the Huth Apocalypse, produced in France in the first quarter of the 14th century, and finally, The New Earth from the Queen Mary Apocalypse, produced in southern England in the first quarter of the 14th century. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. In chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, St. John turns from St. John the Dramatist in many early chapters to what I call St. John the Poet. While not presented in any standard form of poetry or rhyme or meter, These five verses are nonetheless a poetic account enhanced with St. John's customary use of a voice from heaven, song-like phrases, a vision, and a divine declaration followed by a divine command describing the future time in which both heaven and earth 
the ladder formerly corrupted by mankind is remade. In verse 1, St. John writes of a new heaven and a new earth. The idealist view is that the earth is not destroyed but is made new again. This view is shared by many Eastern Church scholars and accepted by many Protestant denominations. This remaking is possible because the earth has been cleansed by the heavenly judgment on the beast and the false prophet and all their followers in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21, discussed in episode 25, and the great white throne judgment by casting death and Hades into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, verses 13, 14, and 15, discussed in episode 26. In this now cleansed and remade world, there is no place for evil. The new heaven and new earth should be seen in light of the Old Testament precedent of God's original promise to the Hebrew people in Exodus 6, verse 7. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. The Hebrews violated God's commandments and became alienated from their God. The prophecies expressed in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 33 concern a time when the promise made in Exodus 6-7 would be renewed, that is, through a new covenant, and they would again become his people and he their God. In the New Testament, St. Paul commented upon this in 2 Corinthians 6.16 when he quoted a similar phrase from Exodus 29, verse 45, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17 about renewal by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The statement in verse 1b, there was no more sea, is understood in the idealist view to have a spiritual rather than a literal meaning. It refers not to bodies of water such as the Mediterranean, but is a metaphor for the absence of the chaos and, if you will, the storm-tossed violence of the old earth. The illustration from the early 14th century is from the Queen Mary Apocalypse, which depicts John viewing a new sea in the literal sense. In verse 2a, St. John follows the Hebrew style of describing visions, as he did when describing the angel coming down in Revelation 18, verse 1, discussed in episode 23, and in Revelation 20, verse 3, discussed in episode 26. But in verse 2, he sees the new holy city called the New Jerusalem descending. Later, in verses 10 to 22, he will describe the new city in great detail, including what it does not contain. In traditional Christian understanding, the new 
holy city, which comes down in verse 2, is the one anticipated by Abraham as described in Hebrews 11 verse 10, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. A New Testament precedent is St. Peter's prediction of a day of the Lord. In 2 Peter 3 verses 10 to 13, including this in verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In verse 2b, St. John reintroduces another image from earlier chapters, specifically the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9, discussed in episode 24, by describing the new Jerusalem as prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This reflects both the Hebrew understanding that the relationship between God and mankind is a marriage, and the Christian doctrine that the church is the bride of Christ, found in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 27, and which I discussed in episode 24. In verse 3a, he makes a bold statement which anticipates what he will write in verse 22. In verse 3a, he writes, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. In verse 22, he writes, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. I will discuss this passage again later in this episode. Once again, some language study may help provide some insight. The Hebrew noun from which the Greek word for tabernacle, skene, is derived originally meant a portable tent such as the one used in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The Greek verb from which dwell in Revelation 21 verse 3a is derived is skenu, meaning to tent or to encamp. Taken together, verses 3a and verse 22 imply that the old physical temple and the lost Ark of the Covenant, which was placed in it, is no longer necessary. An Old Testament precedent is Isaiah 7, verse 14, in which the prophet spoke of the Emmanuel, literally God with us. Instead of being just present with us, St. John is saying that he dwells spiritually in the hearts of the faithful. Verse 3b also sheds light on the meaning of and upon how the early church interpreted St. John's words in Revelation 21, 3a. He will be with them and be their God. This fulfills the prophecies of renewal in Ezekiel 36, and Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, and is consistent with how St. Paul interpreted them in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16, 17, and 18, all of which I mentioned just moments ago. Based on these verses and other passages from the Gospel and Epistles, the Church Universal understands that a physical temple, such as the former one in Jerusalem, is no longer needed.
the logic in this assumption is that Christ is God, and Christ God is in the church universal, wherever it meets. St. John has more to say on this in Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23, which will be discussed later in this episode. In verse 4, St. John brings back another idea, first mentioned in Revelation 7, 17, the sealing of God's servants, discussed in episode 12. He asserts that God will wipe away every tear, and there shall be no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. An Old Testament precedent, also presented in the context of a new heaven and a new earth, is Isaiah 65, verses 17, 18, and 19, in which the Lord said, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. The transition to the final verse is a divine declaration to St. John in verse 5a, when the one on the throne declares, in a summary of verses 1 to 4 on the topic of a new heaven and a new earth, Behold, I make all things new. This summary concept of all things made new may explain the tossing of Hades and death into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, verse 14, which I discussed in episode 26, and St. John's observation in Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23, concerning the absence of a physical temple in New Jerusalem. Neither are needed any longer to fulfill God's plan. In verse 5b, the divine declaration changes to a divine command, reversing the angel's instruction not to write in Revelation 10.4, or seal up, and recalling the command to prophesy in Revelation 10.11, both discussed in episode 15, and he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. The words faithful and true were used in references to Jesus Christ in Revelation 1.5, the faithful witness, in episode 3. Revelation 3.4, the faithful and true witness, in episode 8. And Revelation 19.11, faithful and true, in episode 25. The message is that just as he is faithful and true, the words he speaks are likewise true and faithful. The second reading from chapter 21 is verses 6 through 8. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, 
which is the second death. In verses 6, 7, and 8, St. John again brings back many words, phrases, and titles from earlier chapters and also allusions to words used in his own gospel. It is done in verse 6a, first used by an angel in Revelation 16, verse 17, in episode 21, is an allusion to Jesus' second-to-last words from the cross, it is finished, uniquely reported in John 19, verse 30. St. John next also reintroduces the Greek ego, I me, I am, spoken by Jesus in the unique I am declaration first used in Revelation 1.8, discussed in episode 3, and used in St. John's Gospel. I explored 12 examples of the I am declarations in episodes 29 to 35 in the AIC Bible study series, New Testament Gospels. The illustration is a modern icon of Christ, the Good Shepherd. The thought is completed in the rest of verse 6. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, to which is added the beginning and the end. The most full and complete in both the literary and theological senses is reserved for Revelation 22, verse 13. Another image which recalls other words by St. John is the fountain of water of life, a variation of which was first used in Revelation 7, 17, and 18, discussed in episode 12. The New Testament precedent is John 4, 13, and 14, which also includes an I Am declaration, and in which Jesus refers to God the Father giving living water before saying to the Samaritan woman, at the well of Jacob at Jerusalem, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up unto everlasting life. John 4, verses 13 and 14. The illustration is Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well painted on a wood panel in the early 14th century by the Italian master Duzio di Buoninsegna. The promise in verse 7 to those who overcome marks a return to a theme which first appeared in the letters to the seven churches, to Ephesus in 2.7, to Smyrna in Revelation 2.11, Pergamos in 2.17, Philadelphia in 3.13, and Laodicea in 3.21 all discussed in Episode 5 and Episode 7. The illustration is an illumination in tempera and gold on parchment called John Commanded to Write to Ephesus from the Sansaver Beatus. In the letters, various promises are made, some regarding eternal things and some regarding earthly rewards. In Revelation 21.7, the promises are fulfilled. The one who overcomes will not only, quote, inherit all things, but become a son. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. In verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, 
St. John demonstrates a knowledge of St. Paul's central teachings of Christian doctrine concerning the Father and the right to call him by that name. In 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16, 17, and 18, St. Paul quotes or paraphrases Exodus 29, 45, Leviticus 26, 12, Numbers chapter 33, verses 51 to 56, 2 Samuel 7, 14, Isaiah 52, 11, Ezekiel 37, 25, and 26, and Jeremiah 31, 1 and 9. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Him who thirsts in verse 6b is an allusion to the newly baptized in the church, who are offered life eternal by being filled with the Holy Spirit, who is called the giver of life in the Nicene Creed. Old Testament precedents for the river of life with healing waters are the subject of Ezekiel 47, 1-12, and this from Zechariah 14, 8, And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. In both summer and winter it shall occur. Where verses 6 and 7 promise rewards for the faithful, verse 8 is an indictment of the unfaithful, as well as a promise of divine judgment upon them. The list is comprehensive. The cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. St. John brings together all the concepts of judgment from earlier chapters, especially chapter 20. These will be cast into the lake of fire, which St. John described in Revelation 20, verse 15, discussed in episode 26, as burning with fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone, an allusion to the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19:24, were referred to several previous times in Revelation in 9:18, 11:8, 14:10 and 19.20. The unfaithful and unforgiven who are listed in verse 8 refers to those whose names are not written in the book of life mentioned in Revelation 3.5, the letter to the church at Sardis, discussed in episode 5, 13.8, the discussion of the beasts with the blasphemous name, discussed in episode 18, 17.8, the discussion of the harlot of Babylon, Discussed in episode 22, 20 verses 12 and 15, in the account of Satan bound a thousand years. Discussed in episode 26. Those unforgiven will be mentioned again in Revelation 22 verse 15, which will be discussed in the next episode. Another image returns in verse 8, the second death which was mentioned for the first and second time in Revelation 20, verses 6 and 14. The first death means death of the body, or earthly death, death in the human sense. The second death in verse 8 is the final death from which there is no hope of redemption or resurrection. 
The third reading from chapter 21 is verses 9 through 11. Then one of the seven angels who had these seven bowls filled with these seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. In these verses, St. John the poet departs and St. John the dramatist returns. In verses 9 through 11, he sets the stage for his revelation of the details of New Jerusalem, which follow in verses 12 to 21. In verse 9, important images and numbers return with the reappearance of one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls or vials in the King James Version a plague in chapter 16. The angel offers to show him the bride who is the Lamb's wife, a concept first mentioned in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, the reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb, discussed in episode 24, and again in Revelation 21, 3, earlier in this episode. Traditional Christian teaching is that the church universal is the bride of Christ. Another theme which returns in verse 10 is when the angel carries John away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, Holy Jerusalem. Previously, St. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he received his first vision in Revelation 1.10, discussed in episode 3, when he was visited by the angel who invited him to come up here in Revelation 4.2, discussed in episode 9, and when he saw the vision of the harlot of Babylon and her beast in chapter in Revelation 17.3, discussed in episode 22. The reference to a great and high mountain recalls the Hebrew tradition of prophets taken to a mountaintop to receive a vision, and in the New Testament, the temptation of Christ by Satan in Matthew 4, verses 8 through 11, and Luke 4, verses 5 through 8, and also recalls the angel's invitation to, quote, come up here and see things to come from a heavenly perspective in Revelation 4, 1, discussed in episode 9. In verse 11, St. John observes that the new holy city shone with the glory of God, the glory of God is typically shown in Eastern and Western church art as a semi-transparent blue glow surrounding the figure of a person. However, in Revelation 21 verse 11, it is described as like a jasper stone. Jasper is a semi-precious gem of quartz similar to chalcedony, which is usually opaque, often green, but here is described as clear as crystal in verse 11. You might remember that Jasper was the third stone in the fourth row of the breastplate of judgment of the first Hebrew priest Aaron in Exodus 28.20 and 39.13. In Revelation 4.3, the one who sat on the throne was said to be like a Jasper, Jasper will appear again in verse 18 as the color of the stone of the wall of the New Jerusalem. 
this dignified setting and detail comparable to the breastplate of judgment is presented by St. John in deliberate and sharp contrast with the gaudy jewels worn by the woman riding the scarlet beast with the blasphemous name in Revelation 17, verses 3, 4, and 5. Discussed in episode 22. The reading continues with verses 12 through 21 in which the walls, gates, and streets of the New Jerusalem are described in great detail. The Old Testament precedent for the account is Ezekiel's vision of a new Jerusalem and a new temple in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. The descriptions include the magical and mystical numbers discussed in the primer on numerology in episode 2. The city they depict is a more perfect Jerusalem, one of the original city called the City of David or the City of Peace, which might have been but for the sinful behavior of mankind since Adam and Eve. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out as a square, its length as as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs, its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethysts. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Hebrew and early Christian numerology abounds in this description of the city. The great and high wall had twelve gates, in each in the form of a pearl, which is the origin of the popular phrase pearly gates, each one guarded by one of the twelve angels, and upon each wall was the name of one of the twelve tribes of Israel, which were named in Revelation 7, verses 5 to 8, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Benjamin. Discussed in episode 12. The walls of the city have twelve foundations, and on each of the twelve foundations was the name of one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. In Christian theology, the apostles are, indeed, the foundation of the church universal. The foundations of the wall are decorated with twelve precious stones in the breastplate of judgment from Exodus 28, 16-21, Jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysophrase, jacinth, and amethyst. There are two variations on the number 12. 12,000 furlongs, the result of 12 times 1,000, 
as the length, height, and breadth of the cube-shaped city, and 144 cubits, which is 12 times 12, for the height of the city walls. The familiar mystical numbers 3 and 4 that were used many times earlier in Revelation also reappear, three gates on each of the sides, four points of the compass in order of use, east, north, west, and south. The other details are three mentions of gold, first as the measuring rod used to measure the city, the appearance of the city itself like clear glass, and the street of the city. And note that it is stated in the singular, street, not streets, which is said to be like transparent glass. Finally, the walls of the city are described as built of jasper, the same semi-precious stone said to represent the glory of God in Revelation 21, verse 11, and which has been used in Revelation 4.1 to describe the one who sat on the throne. His description of the city complete, St. John continues with summary observations in the final reading, verses 22 through 27. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In the earlier commentary on the first set of verses, including verse 3a, I discussed the meaning of the statement in verse 22 that he saw no temple in the city, and that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In verse 23, St. John carries the logic further with this bold statement, The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The statement was widely misinterpreted by many in the Western Church tradition. In the idealist view, the correct interpretation lies in a spiritual understanding of the Old Testament account of creation, specifically of the difference between created and uncreated light. Created light is the light given off by the sun and the light reflected back to earth by the moon. It is the earth's rotation around the sun which provides the basis for the system of 24-hour days, 7-day weeks, and 12-month years. These movements have no relationship to uncreated light, which is that light referred to in Genesis 1, 3, 4, and 5 in the command, let there be light on the first day. This uncreated light is the light from God which illuminated the earth before the sun and moon were created on the fourth day in Genesis 1, 14 to 19. In verse 23, St. John's New Jerusalem is lighted by this uncreated light, 
This is the uncreated light which came to mankind incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth, who said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. John tells us categorically in verse 23, the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. An Old Testament precedent for this interpretation is Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 3, a verse used in the Anglican tradition at the Feast of the Epiphany, and which also provides precedent for the reference to kings of the earth in verse 24 and honor of the nations in verse 26. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. The Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. In the first half of the final verse, verse 27, St. John again calls upon his knowledge of the work of St. Paul, especially 2 Corinthians 6.17, a previously cited verse which quotes from Isaiah 52.11, Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. In his final words in verse 27b are another bold statement, only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life may enter the New Jerusalem. This is the sixth reference to a Book of Life or variations of the phrase. Earlier citations in our Revelation 3.5, in episode 6, 13.8, in episode 18, 17.8, in episode 22, 20, 12, and 15, in episode 26. The scriptural precedents, as noted in earlier episodes, are Exodus 32, verse 32, Psalm 87, 6, Malachi 3.16, and Luke 10.20. Thank you for joining me for episode 27 of Revelation and Idealist Interpretation. Next time, in episode 28, the final episode in the series, the focus is on chapter 22, the last chapter of Revelation, and the second part of Act 5 in the divine drama that is the last half of Revelation. We'll have special focus on verses 17 to 21, which form an epilogue for the whole book of Revelation. Other AIC resources for topics discussed in this episode include from the AIC Bible Study video series New Testament Gospels, the I Am Declarations Unique to the Gospel of John are the subject of episode 29 through episode 35. From the AIC Bookstore Publications, the companion book to this series, Revelation and Idealist Interpretation, Chapter 21 includes commentary on the text, plus a full-size illumination in tempera and gold on parchment of the New Jerusalem on page 174, which is one of 51 illustrations from the Bamberg Apocalypse. The volume also includes my primer on numerology and revelation on pages 7 to 11, and the special text box created versus uncreated light on page 181. 
from the writing prophets of the Old Testament. Of the prophets mentioned in this episode, three are major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, who are the subjects of part two, chapters one to three, on pages 11 to 36. The fourth prophet mentioned, Zechariah, is discussed and illustrated in part three, chapter 11, on pages 105 to 110. Finally, from layman's lexicon, key words or phrases of interest are Almighty, Alpha, Angels slash Archangels, Blasphemy, Church, Commandments, Day of the Lord, Faith, Fire slash Cleansing Fire, Hades, Heaven, I Am, Judgment, Numerology, Omega, Pantocrator, Tabernacle, Temple, and witness. The key to accessing everything produced by the Anglican Internet Church is available at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net, where we've made it easier for you to learn about Christian education, doctrine, worship, and study using your preferred way of learning. You can watch our Bible study, Christian education, and seasonal video series using the links on either the digital library or Bible study pages. If you prefer listening, you can listen to the podcast versions of any of our videos using the links on the podcast archive page or to our podcast homilies for all the Sundays in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer using the links on the podcast homilies page. If you prefer written works, you can access any of the 17 AIC bookstore publications, all but one available in both paperback and Kindle editions, using the virtual bookstore link at the bottom of the homepage, or directly using my Amazon Author Central page, https colon right slash right slash www.amazon.com right slash author, right slash Ronald, hyphen, E, hyphen, Shibley. Everything after dot com must be in lowercase letters. I also invite you to subscribe to my blog page at www.anglicaninternetchurch, accessible through the Father Ron's blog tab at the top or the bottom of any page on the site. By clicking the Follow Anglican Internet Church legend, you'll be invited to register your email address and receive notice of all new postings. Please be assured that we do not share subscriber information with any other organization, and you can ask for the removal of your address at any time. Until next time, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Glory be to God for all things. Amen. This program has been a presentation of the Anglican Internet Church. We invite you to visit our website and make use of its resources at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net.